Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. As, uh, as was mentioned, the subject uh, of our discussion this morning is uh, prophet, priest, and king. And of course, in looking at that, I'm obviously speaking about Christ. And Christ is presented to us as a complete savior in these three distinct offices of prophet, priest, and king. And these three offices embrace the completeness of his mission and his work as savior and all that that entails. Uh, these three offices, and we're going to look, uh, to look at them in detail a little bit today. These three offices are consecutive. Each one preparing for the next. They're not simultaneous. They don't overlap. They're actually consecutive. And so I just want us to keep that in mind in looking at these three grand offices of Christ because it helps us appreciate something of the, of the science and the mechanics of the plan of salvation and also the incredible work that our Savior has done and is doing uh, right now. Uh, the first part, well, I might put the title here because we're going to refer to that. So, prophet, priest, and king. Uh, the first uh, aspect that the scripture presents Christ to us as is, of course, as prophet. And if I were to ask you, uh, how would you define prophet? How would you answer? Someone who speaks for God, usually a spokesperson for God, someone who reveals God's mind or God's heart, who speaks on the behalf of God. That's the work, that's the function of a prophet. Christ is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate revelation of God's mind and God's heart. He is the ultimate expression of God's thought to us. He is the best and most qualified spokesperson for God. And that's his first work in the plan of salvation. His first role is as prophet. The scripture brings that up in a number of places. Let's look at our first text in Deuteronomy. How Christ is introduced first of all in this capacity. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says, The Lord thy God, Moses speaking to the children of Israel, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Of course, this is a prophecy about Christ. He is referred to here as a coming prophet. And then you drop down a few verses later, down to verse 18. Verse 18 says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Again, it gives us a little bit more details, but here Christ is introduced or prophesied to come as a prophet, and particularly, Moses says here, he will be of thy brethren. What does that indicate? It indicates he will be one of us. He will be a human being, a fellow human, who will first and foremost come as a prophet, as a spokesperson for God. And as it says here, God's words will be in him. He will speak, he will declare God's word. And so it's not surprising that when we go to the Gospels, we find that Christ is introduced there, for example, in the Gospel of John, as the word. Isn't that right? It says the word was made flesh. That word signifies his work as prophet, as a spokesperson for 
God. And Christ recognized that, of course. He said it in a number of places. Uh, John 12 is an example. Let's turn there. John chapter 12 and verse 49. Jesus here says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. This is fulfillment of the prophecy that was given in Deuteronomy. It says, My words will be in him, and he will speak all that I will Say to him, this is what Christ says. This is, in other words, he's, he's signifying or is revealing his capacity or his work as a prophet. So I just want to judge some things here if we have a timeline. And uh, here we would have the birth of Christ where the word was made flesh. And here we would put the cross of Christ just so we can have an idea. And, uh, and from this point onward, this is a particular time we're going to look at. So... When Christ was born, when, he, when the Word was made flesh, that's his very first capacity he would be as prophet. And Christ actually referred to himself as prophet. And he was recognized as a prophet in a number of places. Let's just look at one of them in Luke chapter 13, verse 33, where Christ himself recognized and referred to himself as prophet. It says here, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Christ here is referring to who? To himself. He was close to Jerusalem and there was this issue that developed and this was his reply. It cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. And another time, I think we, we're more familiar with that verse where Jesus says, a prophet is, uh, is without honor, where? In his own home or in his own country or among his own family. He was speaking about himself. Christ was that prophet. His very first capacity is he would be this prophet. We don't generally think of Christ as a prophet. We, we, we perhaps think, oh yeah, well, that, that's true, he's a prophet. But we don't really focus on that. We don't emphasize that. We don't think of him generally as prophet. Probably the most common way we think of Christ is as priest or king. And that's very true. But before he could be priest or king, he had to be prophet because each one of these is a qualifier for the next as we shall see and so his work as prophet actually laid the groundwork and the qualification for him to then become priest and obviously eventually he would become king the disciples of course recognized that he was pro uh, the prophet even the people you know the the, the jews who were sometimes questioning you know, is this the prophet that was prophesied or not he was known he was seen to be a prophet. Now, for each one of these, as we shall see, before Christ's work as prophet was actually made public, it had to be officially recognized and declared. And that how it's officially recognized and declared is by an anointing. For each one of these different offices and capacities of Christ, before he begins or commences that particular role, he is actually ordained and anointed to fill that particular capacity. So if we think of him as prophet, do we have any incident in the scripture where you might think, oh, well, that's when he was ordained for his role and work as a prophet. Okay, some, some people are saying baptism. If you're thinking baptism, you, you got the right answer. Don't, don't, uh, you don't have to think too much about that. It's fairly easy. So if we put uh, at this point here, just so we can see it, it's easier. We'll put baptism. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. And we will see what each office 
requires before Christ actually fulfills that. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Because his work is a public work, and so it is officially recognized by heaven in a very important ceremony by an anointing. Acts 10, 38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That event was the baptism of Christ. The baptism of Christ was an anointing. It was an ordination that commenced his work as prophet. So the work of Christ as prophet actually begins from this point onward. This is when he was ordained or anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. And then it tells us his work as a prophet, what that would include. The verse actually tells us his work as a prophet, what it would involve. It would be going about doing good, Healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God is with him. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't want to uh, mistake or, or neglect something here. It was in Christ's capacity as prophet that he actually defeated Satan. His work as prophet is the primary work as savior. This was the whole crux of the matter as prophet. And him being anointed by the Holy Spirit and his power, he went about healing the oppressed and doing good and defeating Satan. That's what healing the oppressed really signified. It is taking Satan on and ultimately defeating him, of course, on the cross. All that was in his capacity as prophet, not as priest and not as king. It's actually a very, very important role of Christ. It's what prepares him for the other roles. And of course, you remember at the baptism, another significant point. Uh, what did God say to Christ at the baptism? We all know, yeah, this is my beloved son. And so we're going to put that here. Beloved, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we'll see the sonship of Christ figuring very largely in all these different roles and all the different anointings that he receives to fulfill each one of those functions and capacities. Christ was that prophet and his sonship is an integral part of that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But uh, Christ being prophet... Before he became priest is actually typified elsewhere in the scriptures. There was someone else in the Bible who was first prophet before he became priest. And this person is like a type or, or an example of Christ who also was prophet before he became priest. Any idea who this person might be? An Old Testament character. Okay, Samuel, that's good. Samuel is true. But I was thinking more specifically of Aaron. And I think someone in the back uh, mentioned Aaron. There are a number of people. Melchizedek was a, was a priest and a king as well. Uh, he, was, he had a dual role, not particularly mentioned as a prophet. But Aaron, you remember when God sent Moses to Egypt, he says, you will be a God unto Moses, and Aaron, your brother, shall be what? Your prophet. You remember that? Or your spokesperson. Or your speaker, your mouthpiece, the one who will speak on your behalf. And then a little later, when uh, they were in the wilderness, of course, and the sanctuary was being built, then Aaron was ordained and anointed as the high priest. Christ actually went through that particular process as well. And during that time, he defeated Satan. He accomplished 
what uh, the prophet Daniel talked about. He brought in everlasting righteousness. He dealt with the sin problem. He made an end of sin and of transgression. All these things he did here on the cross, thus defeating Satan. And it's because of this that qualifies him then for his next office of priesthood, as we shall see. Prophet and then priest. Of course, like we said earlier, the, the priest role of Christ begins after the prophetic office finishes. Like we said, they are consecutive, they are not simultaneous. So one finishes and ushers in the next. There is a transition and then the next one starts. Uh, when did Christ become priest? Can we pinpoint a particular, you know, point that maybe we can put on our timeline as to when Christ began to be priest? Okay, resurrection. Priest or high priest? He is only high priest. So every time the Bible talks about him as priest, it's in his capacity as, as the high priest. Yes. After he went to heaven. Okay, well, it had to be, obviously, after this point. It could not be before. This was the time of his prophet's uh, office, where he spoke the word of God, where he uh, dealt with Satan and defeated him. And so it had to be sometime after the cross. And obviously, it's when he went back to heaven. Let's look at a few verses. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> when he ascended to heaven, that's when he commenced or began his high priest office. Uh, Hebrews 6.20 says, speaking of Christ, Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of? Melchizedek, speaking of course of heaven, in the context there, says Christ entered into heaven, and when he entered into heaven, he was made a high priest forever. He no longer is prophet, he becomes priest. During this time, he was not priest, was he? He was prophet. He finishes this office, he becomes priest, he is no longer prophet. And uh, let's look at another verse in chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. <clears throat> And verse 11. Obviously, the, we focus a lot on the priesthood of Christ. It's very important for us. And the whole book of Hebrews really is, is a, a specialized epistle in the priesthood of Christ. The Gospels mainly dealt with Christ as prophet. The epistle of Hebrews deals mainly with Christ in his capacity as priest. Just so we can see the, the picture a little bit. Uh, chapter 9, verse 11 says... But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And so Christ became this high priest. Now, just as Christ was anointed, and we're going to put here his anointing. Well, this is really running out fast. Just as Christ was anointed at his baptism, and his anointing was the commencement of his prophetic office, then we also must find a similar occurrence for Christ to begin his priest's office. He must be anointed as priest. Isn't that right? And uh, does anyone have any idea where we find that? Just... Uh, Acts 2, verse 17. Acts 2, close. 
the book of Hebrews actually tells us, and it spells it out very plainly at the beginning of that book. And Acts 2 does mention as well. But the book of Hebrews chapter 1 has a very explicit ex uh, reference to this particular event. The anointing of Christ as the priest which begins his ministry as our high priest. Hebrews 1 verse 8 and 9. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What does the oil of gladness represent? The Holy Spirit. Okay. That's right, and Acts 2 mentions it as well. The apostles in their preaching mentioned that. It says here, unto the Son he saith, and then he anoints the Son. Who is the speaker here? God the Father is the one who anoints his Son as priest. And so we have a point here where Christ is anointed as priest or high priest. Who anointed him at the baptism? It was the Father as well. So interesting, in every event of anointing for a particular office, the father anoints the son, and he mentions his sonship. At the baptism, he says, you are my beloved son, and he anoints him with the Holy Spirit, commencing his office as prophet. When Christ goes back to heaven, the father tells him, he says, to the son, and then he anoints him with the oil of gladness. What is the reason in Hebrews Chapter 1. What is the reason that Christ is anointed with this oil of gladness? It says it in the verse. What is the reason he is anointed with this oil of gladness? Yes. Okay, it says, because you have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God anointed you with the oil of gladness. When did Christ love righteousness and hate iniquity? In his capacity as prophet. That's when he dealt with Satan and defeated him and demonstrated a love for righteousness and a hatred for iniquity. So his work and his uh, office as prophet qualifies him to be a priest. And it's on this basis that God says, because you've done this, now I will anoint you with the oil of gladness. Now you can commence your ministry as a high priest of your people. So the work of Christ as prophet is extremely important. Extremely, extremely important. And so here Christ was anointed. So what point can we pinpoint that particular event in Hebrews chapter 1, 8 and 9? I'll give you a tip. As soon as Christ was anointed with the oil of gladness in heaven as high priest, as soon as that happened, he immediately poured out the Spirit on earth in an event that we know as Pentecost. So I'm going to put Pentecost here. Well, use your imagination a little bit. And this is, uh, this is Pentecost. Maybe we'll just, uh, I'll put, I'll put the P for Pentecost. Yeah, we'll have to get some kind of a alcohol thing. We can probably figure it out. So I'll put P there for Pentecost. So it was on the day of Pentecost that in heaven, Christ was anointed as the high priest of his people. He began his work, his priesthood as this priest. And uh, how long is he going to stay as a priest? Okay, forever. Very good. 
Okay, let's have a look at a Bible verse. How about that? Let's look at Hebrews 7. It's good to think about some of these things. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 17. Oh, we have some more. Thank you. They're popping up everywhere. Fantastic. Oh, that's, that's really permanent. Oh, that's even worse. Shall we just use it? Okay, is that a general consensus? We can all say we can. Okay, uh, I'll just put a P here. That's for Pentecost. That's the cross. Priest. Okay, thank you very much for that. Uh, how long will his priesthood last? That's the question. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17. It says, For he testifies, thou art a priest for how long? Forever, after the order of? Melchizedek. So will the priesthood of Christ come to an end? Yes or no? Okay. Now remember, there are three offices. We all recognize that. They are consecutive, not parallel. They don't overlap. Christ is not, uh, you know, all three at once. He f distinctly fills each one. And so why does the Bible talk about him being a priest forever? after the old order of Melchizedek. If we understand what the work of Christ as a priest involves, what, why does he fill the office of priest? What is to be accomplished by his work as a priest? And does that work finish or not? Then we can understand what it means. And of course, his work as priest will come to an end at one point. We know that from other verses. And we know how the scripture uses the term forever to signify a number of things that last until the specified function is accomplished. We know about the state of the dead and about, uh, you know, the Bible talks about the fire that burns forever and all these different aspects. We understand that that means until all that is required is accomplished, it will last as long as needed. And so Christ's work and capacity as a priest will function and work as long as that is needed. Because there is also... Him as king, which we shall see. Anyway, let's look at some verses so you don't uh, get too shocked by some of these statements. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. We're still in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to go far, but Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Just so we can see how this beautiful aspect is brought out. Hebrews 8, 1 says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Paul is painting a picture here. He says, Christ as high priest, and then he gives us another image. He says he is sitting where? On the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. What's that mean? I'm going to draw a very crude throne here, okay? This is a seat representing a throne. Christ is sitting... It says, on the right hand of the throne. Who is the owner of this throne? The Father. And so Paul is presenting Christ. His work as priest is also represented as sitting on the right hand of the throne. There are many other verses that say that. That's his definition or that's his uh, explanation for his work as a priest. What does that mean? It doesn't mean Christ is stuck, literally, to have to sit there for the whole duration of his priesthood. It signifies that his priesthood is a place and a position of the highest honor. 
He occupies the right hand of the throne of God. Now remember, Christ is occupying this position as a human being. The highest place of honor for the representative of humanity is the right hand of the throne of God. That's the work of Christ as a priest. Because keep in mind, this is the period where Christ is a human being. His name as a human being is what? Okay, Jesus or in the Hebrew? Yeshua, is that right? It began distinctly at this point when he was born on earth. He was never a human being before that time. Correct? He was only a divine being. Is that right? And his name was what? Okay, his name was Michael. Okay, no time to go into all that detail now, but the word uh, or the, the, the Hebrew name Michael uh, means what? One who is like God. He was the only begotten son who was the express image of his father. And then the word became flesh. And Christ begins his human existence on earth. And his first capacity or office in that existence is as prophet. And it's very interesting because as prophet, we saw that the prophet is the spokesperson of God. He brings down to us God's thoughts and God's intentions. He reveals God's will to mankind. And then... During his life on earth, he met and he defeated Satan. And his work as a priest is actually the reverse. is to represent mankind to God and to intercede on our behalf before God. And so Christ, in his capacity as prophet and priest, he completes this circle. And the foundation that qualifies him to do that is his human nature. That's why the word had to be made flesh. And so he is a priest as a human, sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, one of us. You with me? And I find it really neat how these pictures in the scriptures are portrayed. It's an amazing thing to look at the whole plan of salvation. There are some amazing, neat details in it. So Christ is represented as sitting on the right hand of God. Let's go to Psalm 110. Back to the Old Testament. Psalm 110. And verse 1. Psalm 110 and verse 1. And Psalm 110 is a prophecy that talks about the priesthood of Christ. And this is what Paul really quotes extensively in the book of, in the book of Hebrews. Verse 1, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies... Thy footstool. Now look at verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see sitting on the right hand of the throne of God is the work and the role of Christ as the priest. He is represented as sitting on the right hand of God. And this is why we're asking the question, will this priesthood ever end? Or in other words, will Christ ever Stop sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. That's really another way of asking the same question. Isn't that right? And the answer is again in the book of Hebrews. So let's go back to the book of Hebrews. I'm getting your fingers working this morning. We're doing a lot of Bible searching. It's more like a Bible study than, than, a, than a sermon as such. Uh, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll just see. Why is it significant to see 
that Christ as a priest is sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. What is the importance of that? Hebrews 10, verse 11, and down to 13. Hebrews 10, 11 to 13. We already read it in Psalms, but here is what it says. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. We just read in Psalms, it said, sit on my right hand for how long? Until your enemies are made your footstool. Now it says Christ is sitting on the right hand of God, and from henceforth he is what? Expecting. He's expecting something. What's he expecting? His enemies to be made his footstool. In other words, when his enemies are made his footstool, then his work as priest is finished. Isn't that right? And he is sitting there having this expectation, having this anticipation until his enemies are made his footstool. That's what God told him. You sit on my right hand until a certain point, until your enemies are made your footstool. And he continues as a priest forever until his enemies are made his footstool. Because brothers and sisters, Christ is not going to occupy the right hand of the throne of God forever. Because he has his own throne, which he occupies as king. That's why God told him, you stay on my throne until the next phase. And then you will have your own throne where you are king. Let's look at that in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Because it's very significant for us to understand the different phases and how they all relate. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 30 down to 33. Luke 1, beginning at verse 30. The angel here speaking to Mary. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is a prophecy about Christ. What will he be given? The throne of his father David, and therefore a kingdom, which means he is king. If he's sitting on a throne and he has a kingdom, he is a a king. Christ is not sitting on the throne of his father David now, is he? He is sitting on whose throne? On his father's throne, working as a priest, because that office and that role actually prepares him for the next phase. And when his enemies are made his footstool, then he occupies the throne of his father David, and he rules as a king in his kingdom. We're going to be looking a little bit more at that in detail uh, this afternoon. What does it mean when it says his enemies will be made his footstool? Okay, there's a few mumbles. I didn't make any of them out. Sorry. Can you try again louder? It's okay. You can, you can try again. Okay, done with sin. Who are his enemies? 
Okay, Satan and any unbeliever, right? Those who reject the authority of Christ. We see that in existence in the world today. We have a conflict between good and evil. People who are on the Lord's side and people who are not on the Lord's side. Christ is going to work as a priest until the time comes when all his enemies are made his footstool or subdued unto him. And we know that his work as a priest right now has to do with examining and making up the subjects of his kingdom in, in what we understand to be the investigative judgment. He is in the most holy place. He is working. He is doing something in the capacity of a priest that will ultimately result in making up the number of those who are his subjects. And then at that time, his enemies are rightly made his footstool and actually he comes from heaven and actually does that. All his enemies will be subdued under him. We'll see that as well in a minute. And that's when he takes the throne of his father David. In other words, this prophecy that the angel told Mary has not yet been fulfilled, has it? It is still future. It is coming. It's coming very soon. And until such a time, Christ is sitting as a priest with this expectation. This expectation of his enemies being made, made his footstool. And so, like we said, this leads us to the next aspect. So I just want to write that down here, his anointing uh, unto the Son. And he is anointed with the oil of gladness. So we have two anointings for Christ here. And then we come to the final phase. When his enemies are made his footstool, that's when Christ's priest, uh, sorry, yeah, priesthood finishes and he begins to be king. Now, I don't want to mistake something here because someone asked me once to say, are you saying that Christ is not king now? Uh, and the answer is yes and no. Uh, if you remember in at the anointing that Christ was given here in Hebrews, it said, unto you, the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Christ rules as a priest now in the hearts of his people. And so in one sense, that's a lordship or a kingship role. But that is not his kingly role that is prophesied in the scriptures yet, because he is still priest. But all those who have Christ ruling in the heart as priest will then be his subjects when he comes as king. So this is his work now. He rules in the hearts of his people. And then, of course, he will come as a king. You remember that uh, when Christ was uh, in the trial before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas asked him, are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, you have said, and you will not see me again until you see me coming on the right hand of power. What was he referring to? His return as, as king. Yes, we have a comment or question. Was his crown of throne on the cross and acknowledgement of this? The purpose of the crown of thorns, it was placed by his enemies and it was for the purpose of uh, inflicting pain and mockery. And so in a, in a maybe roundabout way, we could try and look at it that way. But remember, the person who anoints him for each office is really the father, not his enemies. And so his father did it here, his father did it here. And we should expect that there is another anointing for his work as king before he commences this particular role or this particular office. So Christ was referring to his return as king, of course, to Caiaphas. 
And uh, like we said, his work now is to make up the subjects of his kingdom. That's what qualifies him to be this king. He is going to be a king, of course, forever. Let's look at a few verses. Uh, Revelation 19, I think we're familiar with that. We're almost there. Revelation chapter 19. And verse 16. Revelation 19 and verse 16. This is speaking about Christ when he comes. It says, and, on, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Second coming. When Christ comes, he doesn't come as a prophet. He doesn't come as a priest. He comes as a king. A king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, a transition has occurred before his coming to finish his work of priesthood and to commence his work as king. And for that transition to be consistent with the pattern we've seen, there also has to be some point where he is anointed as the king. Now what is that point? That's a good question. Where Christ is anointed as king. We're going to see that together, hopefully, and it'll come together. But uh, this is not the only place where he's called King of Kings. Uh, there's other places in the book of Revelation where he's referred to as that. Did you have a comment, uh, Vasily? Yeah, just uh, in the Bible, you notice that he was king, and then he speaks at the same time. How would you think Thank you. Good point. Melchizedek was a king and a priest at the same time. And how does that parallel Christ? Uh, Every type is not perfect in its representation. The anti-type is always greater than the type. So Melchizedek, in those capacities, because he couldn't live three different lives, or he couldn't live long enough, he fulfilled in one person these offices at the same time. But when it comes to Christ, he fulfills that in a very uh, orderly pattern and manner, as we see in the scriptures. And so he is greater than the type. He gives us a lot more detail and a greater fulfillment. Uh, but we can look at that a little bit more in detail if you want. But that's a very, very good question. So when Christ comes a second time, it says he comes with this kingly authority. And it's at that time when he comes and he actually subdues the kings of this earth and he subdues his enemies who are already now made his footstool and he comes to carry that out, indicating this particular transition. Let's go to, to another verse in Luke 19. And just look at this a little closer as we try and determine this point. Where does Christ finish his priesthood and begin his king, kingly office? Luke 19, verse 11 and 12. Luke chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Who is this nobleman? And he went to a far country for what purpose? To receive a kingdom. What is this far country? Heaven. So Christ right now, we, because we're living somewhere here, right? This is us. 
We're living somewhere here. Christ right now is a priest. He's represented as being in a far country. And his work as a priest is receiving a kingdom. And when he receives this kingdom, that's when he becomes king of that kingdom. In other words, his work of investigative judgment is to make up the subjects of his kingdom. And then he receives this kingdom with its subjects and comes and takes them home or takes us home. That's the second coming, right? So we need to find at one point, does Christ receive a kingdom? Let's go to the book of Daniel. And as we turn there, we, we can reference a few other things that come to mind. Obviously, Christ is uh, referring to himself. <clears throat> Remember, Jesus one time, we're going to Daniel 7, okay? If you're turning, Daniel 7, you can stop there for a minute. Before we read the verse in Daniel, remember Jesus was one time speaking to his disciples in John 14, a very familiar passage. He says, fear not, let your, uh, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions, and I go to do what? This is his work as priest, is to prepare a place for us. Uh, preparing a place for us does not mean to build buildings and mansions with, with bricks or, you know, this, this is not what Christ is really referring to. He's referring to making a valid place for all his people through his work on their behalf as a priest. He says, I'm going to make a secure place for you in heaven. You're going to have a rightful place in the kingdom because of me going away and preparing this place for you. That's his work as a high priest. He's preparing us a place. So if anyone questions your position in heaven one day, we can have some books opened and examine that you have a valid place in the kingdom. It's not just the physical building. Okay, we think of that often, but don't forget that Christ is doing that right now as a priest. He is receiving this kingdom. And then he says, I'll prepare a place for you. And then I will do what? Come and receive you so that where I am, you might be also. That's his coming as king. And he receives this kingdom just before he comes as king. We're in Daniel 7, right? Let's look at verse 13 and 14. We'll just see how all this ties together with the close of the priesthood of Christ. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This is the closing of Christ's work as a high priest. It says here, he is brought, he is like the one like the Son of Man, he is brought before the Ancient of Days. Who is that? God the Father. And before the Ancient of Days, he remains and he works as a priest until a time when in verse 13 he says, he is given this dominion and this kingdom. You with me? Who does the giving? Obviously the Father, and we're going to see that as well in the anointing. And as it says in Daniel here, and all nations shall serve him. In other words, the only nations that will remain are those who are loyal to Christ. The only people who will remain are those who are loyal to him because all his enemies will have been made his footstool and he will subdue them. That's the work of his priesthood right now. That's what he is doing. And uh, he's about to come and claim his subjects. And what the, that's what the second coming is all about. So Christ was anointed as prophet. He's anointed as priest. We saw when is his anointing as king exactly? 
obviously when he receives this kingdom. Where in the scripture do we read about that? Let's go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is where we find this anointing of Christ, this time as king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. This is obviously a prophecy, and it's referring to this particular event. Verse 6, it says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now, some translations might bring out the meaning here when it says set. If you look it up in the Hebrew, it actually means anointed. This, you can do that for homework if you, are, if you want. So, when it says, I have set my king, or in other words, I have anointed my king, where? On my holy hill of Zion. Who is being spoken to here? This is not David. This is David writing by inspiration, prophetically, of Christ. Because look at the next verse. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. So here we have Christ anointed as king, right? In the holy hill of Zion. Where is that? Jerusalem. Which one? Where is he right now as priest? He's in heaven. So he gets anointed as king where? In heaven. Because when he returns, he's already received the kingdom. He's already king of kings. So his anointing takes place in heaven. He is anointed by the Father. And again, at the same time, it is repeated. The, the, the theme that's been repeated all along, his sonship is emphasized. Here he was anointed and God says, you are my beloved son. He was prophet. Here he was anointed as priest and says, unto the son, he saith. Now he is anointed as king and he says, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. This day have I begotten thee. And so we'll put here his sonship again. It doesn't mean he was begotten here. It's the fact that he is the begotten son that qualifies him to be all these things. Because he is not just a human being, but he's also the divine son of God. He didn't stop being a divine being when he came as a man. And so all these are linked and they harp back to the very foundation of it all is the fact that he is the only begotten son. Now the reason that's said here is because the office of Christ as king, how long does that last for? Forever, meaning is there anything after that? There's no other offices. He, he rules, he sits on the throne of his father. His kingdom rules forever and ever. There is no something else that we are looking forward to as far as Christ is uh, going to fulfill. The reason why all these anointings are significant and why his sonship is mentioned in each one is because, like I said, his very first anointing ever was him being anointed as the begotten son. Yes. Okay, he's declaring, he says, I will declare for decree, the Lord hath said unto me. He is repeating what he has been told. And he is repeating what he has been told at his anointing as king. It doesn't mean this day he was begotten. It says, God told me at one point, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. So he's repeating that. And, and that fact that he is the begotten son is the foundation for his anointing. 
And so when he was actually begotten as the son, he was anointed as the son, as the prince of heaven. And we can go to Proverbs 8. I think we can all <laughs> tell that off by heart. Yeah, in verse 7 it says, I will declare for a decree. Or I will make, he's repeating something that God had told him at one point. And the point when God told him that is recorded in Proverbs 8. Let's look at that. We're almost there uh, with finishing time. So we'll quickly wrap up with this thought. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 and 23. I think we're all familiar with Proverbs 8, 22 and 23. But again, it has a very interesting detail that relates to what we're talking about here. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. Here Christ is speaking through Solomon. He's speaking of the time when he was begotten as the son, the only begotten son. And it says in verse 23, I was set up. If again you look that up, it's just like the one in Psalm 2, 7. He was anointed. He was anointed when? From everlasting. So the very first anointing here, anointed son, was when he was begotten. Christ was anointed from everlasting as the only begotten son of God. And every time he came to be anointed by the father again, his sonship is repeated again every single time. So the sonship of Christ is really everything to us as a people. That's why the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten and anointed, that's my addition, son from this verse. But his only begotten son, that's our savior. And all these anointings only confirm and affirm this particular fact. Let's go to Daniel 7. This is our last verse here. Daniel chapter 7, we'll go back. Christ receives this kingdom. as the anointed son and the anointed king of this kingdom. And he receives it not just for himself. The kingdom is not just his. Daniel 7, verse 27. Daniel 7, 27 says, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Who receives this kingdom? Christ, but he receives it on our behalf. Because he receives it as a human being, representing all human beings who are his. And so this kingdom is actually given to us. That's, that's what we're looking forward to, brothers and sisters. We're looking forward to being part of this kingdom that is given to us. Don't you remember when Jesus was on earth, he told his disciples, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to do what? To give you the kingdom. That's what he's doing right now for us as a priest. He's receiving this kingdom for the purpose of coming and sharing this kingdom with us. We're going to look at that, like I said, a little bit later in detail. And so Christ's human existence has very three, uh, has very distinct three phases. Prophet, when he was here on earth, and he finished that. Priest, right now in heaven, and he is soon to finish that, and coming king. And that will last forever. When he was a prophet, 
He dealt with sin and he condemned sin in the flesh and defeated Satan. When he's a priest, he represents us and cleanses his people and prepares them to be subjects of his kingdom. And when he is king, he doesn't rule over us as a king. He shares the kingdom with us that we might rule with him. That's the whole purpose of the plan of salvation, to restore humanity back to favor with heaven. Okay, we have a few comments. Yes. Yes. Thank you. There is no question about that. Good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Because yes, when we talk about Christ here, if we put his throne here, Christ sits on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom eventually is this earth. That doesn't deny that God the Father is still sitting on the throne of the universe, of course. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a very good point. Uh, Christ rules over the kingdom of his father David, as the prophecy said. Yes, that's exactly right. And as priest now, that's what he ministers. He ministers the effect and the benefits of his sacrifice. He ministers his own blood or his own life, which we receive now to prepare us to be subjects in his kingdom. And of course, that will come to, a, to an end at one point because we believe in an event that will happen somewhere here, which is called the close of probation, right? And it was, it's after this that we have the second coming. And that's the transition. When the close of probation is really the finish or the end of his work as priest. He takes off his priestly garments and he actually puts on the kingly garments and comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are you saying there's someone who has a comment here? Probation closes, finishes his work as priest and begins the next phase. And there's that transition point. So we are, so long as probation closes, uh, sorry, so long as probation is still open or not closed yet, uh, there is still forgiveness of sin, there is still intercession, there is still mediation. When that comes to an end, that's why his enemies will be made his footstool. His enemies can no longer change. That's it. It's a permanent state and his enemies are made his footstool and he comes and he demonstrates that in his second coming. And so it's a very neat uh, progression that occurs. But because we're recording and the discussion is really becoming alive now, which is great, can we just uh, close up and pray and then we can keep discussing, but just so the recording is, is not too all over the place, if that's all right. So I'm basically finished. Like we said, Christ now is ministering as a priest on our behalf in the work that we understand to be the investigative judgment, and he's soon to be our coming king. So this is, and when he comes as king, the Bible says we're made kings and priests with him as well, right? We share in that kingdom, we're made kings with him. So let us trust our prophet, let us look to our priest, let's have him rule in our hearts, and let's look forward to our coming king. The kingdom is to be given to us. His work in heaven, and, and everything that's happening in heaven is to receive a kingdom to give to us, this kingdom that will last forever and ever. So, brothers and sisters, we have a great and wonderful Savior. We have a complete Savior. This man, Christ Jesus, in a marvelous plan of salvation, and the results of it, well, now that the circle is complete, the results of it is it will last forever. So I challenge you and I appeal to you to really make your calling and election Sure, now while our high priest is still working. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.